KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Tuesday, August 23rd. Local advocates say the U.S. isn't doing enough to help Afghans. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill yesterday that would have allowed supervised injection sites in L.A., San Francisco, and Oakland. Senate Bill 57 was written by State Senator Scott Weiner as a way to curb overdose deaths and connect people to treatment. Newsom said the pilot program could work against its purpose if done without a strong plan. He said he is open to discuss the program more after more planning is done by city and county officials. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria announced yesterday that he has chosen his preferred plan to redevelop the sports arena property in the Midway District. Gloria's preference for Midway Rising was not a surprise. It was his preferred redevelopment plan back in the spring when his staff last updated the city council on the project. The development team envisions a new arena, retail and office space, a 200-room hotel, 20 acres of open space, and more than 4,000 apartments. 2,000 of those would be affordable for low-income households. The mayor plans on presenting his recommendation to the council on September 13th. Four municipal pools in the city of San Diego are closed because of a nationwide carbon dioxide shortage. Carbon dioxide is used to maintain pH levels at these city's pools. The affected pools are the Carmel Valley, Colina del Sol, Kearney Mesa, and Martin Luther King Jr. pools. City officials are now looking for alternative options in place of CO2, so it's unclear how long the pools will be closed. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. A year after America ended its longest war, thousands of Afghans are settling into new lives inside the U.S. Though advocates say the U.S. is not doing enough, especially to help women who remained behind and are now under threat from the Taliban. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story. Masuma Ismail Zada and her five sisters evacuated from Afghanistan August 30th last year. They were allowed only one backpack each. She takes me through their Miramesa home, 
She's embarrassed that their house is furnished mainly by donations. Right now, when I see the newcomers, new Afghan comers, uh, I do my best to help them because I, I can feel whatever they are feeling right now. Their father died a month before. With no male relative living with them, they were virtually trapped in their home as the Taliban took over Afghanistan. Something like a nightmare, maybe for the people who are living in the U.S., it, it looks like a movie. But for us, every minute was like a horror film. We didn't know what will happen next. Before they fled, she taught English literature at the local university. Occasionally, in the middle of the night now, Esmailazada holds virtual classes with her former students because English has been removed from the curriculum and women are often barred from class. They had goals, dreams, but right now they said, we do not know about our tomorrow. What should we do? They, they, they are really broken, yeah. She now works with La Mesa Community Health Centers helping other recent arrivals. The transition to the U.S. is especially tough for Afghan women. Her father stressed education. One sister is a neurosurgeon, the other an architect. Though many of the women Esmeralzada works with cannot read or write. Some of the organization, when they help, they say that, okay, you have to uh, start working. But how? When they do not have any knowledge, when they do not know the language, when they do not even have that self-confidence to work. In the hectic last days of the American presence in Afghanistan, the U.S. prioritized getting out people who had worked with the U.S. And Devin Cohn with Refugees International says the focus was on those who might qualify for special immigration visas or SIVs. Because of the work that, that these women did, they were at risk by the Taliban. Yet they didn't work for the U.S. government. So there really was no way, and there's still very few ways for them to get to the U.S. Sean Van Diver's group Afghan Evac formed to coordinate a range of vet groups who were working to get people out of Afghanistan. One year out, he's worried public attention is fading. And right now it's a really awful situation. And what's really important is that the world doesn't stop talking about this, because as soon as the world stops talking about it, that's when we're going to see the uptick. And what we saw when Ukraine kicked off was that there was an uptick in raids on houses, in beatings, in atrocities occurring. The group supports the recently introduced Afghan Adjustment Act, which would help Afghans caught in immigration limbo. Masuma Esmalzadeh's sister, Golsum Mismalzadeh, worked with USAID, and not directly with Americans. But it was enough to get her family on the radar for their last-minute evacuation. Glad to be safe, she's also sad that she's now part of a brain drain forced by the Taliban. It made me sad. And it, it just telling me that my education was useless. Then I cannot use it for my own people, for my country. So that's, that's the thing that made me disappointed and hopeless. Without some other permanent solution, the sisters now have two years to make it through the backlogged immigration process. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. Officials broke ground yesterday on a project to create a second border port of entry in Altai Mesa. KPBS reporter Katie Alvarado was there and has details. 
Leaders and dignitaries from both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border held a symbolic groundbreaking for a project over two decades in the making, the Otay East Port of Entry, also known as Otay Two. The four-lane road will connect to a customs, border patrol, and CHP commercial facility. California's Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kulinakis spoke about how desperately needed another border crossing is to help ease the burden on the busiest crossing in the Western Hemisphere. It is estimated that the increasing wait times cost the United States and Mexico a combined $3.4 billion in annual economic output and more than 88,000 jobs each year. Otay 2 is expected to open in 2024. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. The Chula Vista Bayfront is at last getting its long-promised redevelopment with work beginning on the Gaylord Pacific Resort and Convention Center. But KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer says that for the time being, area residents will have to contend with several road closures. Even though the project is expected to pump hundreds of millions of dollars annually into the local economy, KPBS spoke to residents and workers who are worried about the road closures and overcrowding. But Jim O'Callaghan, CEO of South County Economic Development Council, says short-term pain will translate to long-term gain. Much of the area will ultimately have new paths for cars and pedestrians alike. Out here, you're going to have hundreds of acres of walkable space that'll connect to the bikeway, um, giving ample opportunity for people to take advantage of fields that they haven't been able to use in years. Um, some of this was, you know, old sites that were for refineries, power plants, um, and now being able to take it back as public land is pretty incredible. The project is expected to be completed in 2025. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Coming up, SDSU starts the fall semester with its largest freshman class. We'll have that story and more next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. As SDSU welcomes its largest freshman class this week, neighbors are asking the school, to rein in the out-of-control parties. KPBS reporter Alexander Wynn has more. It's the first day of the semester. All around campus, there is the usual hubbub of college life. Clubs to sign up for, textbooks to buy. There are also parties and trouble. This past Friday, San Diego police arrested two minors who brandished a gun and a hatchet following a fight at an off-campus party. Jim Jennings has lived in the college area for more than 22 years and he faults the university. Um, one of the things I think I'm most upset about with State is they talk a good game. They say, well, we're going to get involved. and But then they say, you know, well, if they're over 21 and they're drinking in a house, there's nothing we can do about it. San Diego police will increase patrol around the school until at least Labor Day. 
to cut down on the parties and the crowds. Alexander Wen, KPBS News. KPBS is a service of SDSU. This year's selections for One Book, One San Diego are out, and for adult readers, the choice is the novel *The Vanishing Half* by author and Oceanside native Britt Bennett. One Book, One San Diego's goal is to bring the community closer together through the shared experience of reading and discussing the same book. *The Vanishing Half* is about a family across generations. The book examines issues of race. And how we are shaped by the past. Britt Bennett spoke with KPBS Midday Edition in July of 2020. At that time, host Allison St. John began the conversation, asking about how the timing of the book's publication tied into the events of summer 2020, in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing. I didn't expect that when this book came out that people would be eager to read about race or race, racial identity or racism. In these different ways, so I hope that the book, you know, gives you、uh, a good、uh, reading experience, a nice emotional reading experience. But I also hope that it allows you a, a new lens of thinking about identity in a way that is maybe a little bit more complicated than the ways that we often think about identities. So, talk a bit about the the underlying premise of the book, the the enormous effect the color of your skin has on the choices that you can make, and and talk about some of the key choices that these twin sisters make that result in them becoming such different people. The book is, I think, about that that very question that you just sort of brought up: this idea of choice、um, and the ways that we can make sometimes small choices that end up having really large ramifications in our lives. In this book, in the case of Stella, she's a character who chooses eventually to live her life as a white woman, and that's a choice that she kind of stumbles into.、Um, she's mistaken for white in a, in a moment, and she just kind of goes with it. So I was always really interested in, in the idea of, of racial passing and. And kind of the implications of that. How does that change you? How does it change your children or, or the rest of the family? How does this one choice have huge ramifications for for generations to come? So both of these twins have very light skin, and that's what gives the book such an interesting、uh, premise that they can make choices here. And Stella builds this completely new life for herself. Now, the idea of of creating your own your own identity is linked to the idea of being, you know, a free person, which is at the root of what being an American means. But is something lost? Do you think in choosing to to deny your heritage, like Stella chose to do? Well, I think that you know a lot of stories about passing often focus on the kind of opportunism of it, the idea of what characters stand to gain by choosing to be somebody else. But for me, what really became interesting about Stella was was that question of what is she losing by choosing to be somebody else. She gains, you know, access and and power and status and wealth,、um, and a degree of freedom that she did not have previously as as a black woman growing up in the Jim Crow South. But at the same time, she does lose a sense of of her own past. She loses her family. She loses、uh, a sense of community and and identity and culture. And I I found that really compelling to think about what she is actually leaving behind in this choice to be a new person. So, how do you think that choice will resonate with today's readers? I should make the point that your story takes place in the 1960s and 70s, right? Right.、Um, you know, I think that I wanted to to write sort of toward the past, but from a 21st century perspective. And for me, what became also really interesting is this idea of, of what does a story about passing look like if we assume that identity is already something that's fluid. Uh, if we assume that you can identify in different types of ways throughout your life. 
um, that you can see yourself one way that other people can see you a completely different way. Like if we take that fluidity for granted, what does this, this story really look like? And I think that that's maybe what will make this book feel a little bit different for a contemporary reader than a more traditional um, or a sort of uh, a story written in the past in the way of something like Nell Larson's passing or even imitation of life. I think it's different from those stories in that way. Do you think things have changed since the 60s that perhaps the rewards of standing in your Black heritage are greater now? I mean, I think things have changed a lot. I, I, you know, I think for Stella, she's, I didn't think of her as so much as a character who, who wanted to be white insofar that she wanted kind of the protections that whiteness affords you. That, that felt more important, I think, to her. This idea that she wants to feel safe and she wants to feel secure. And those are things that she felt like she could only obtain by being white. So I think that now I think of a character like Stella, she would have uh, different opportunities and different avenues available to her um, that this character would have had back in the 60s. That was Britt Bennett, author of The Vanishing Half, speaking with Ellison St. John in 2020. You can find Britt Bennett's book, as well as all of this year's selections for One Book, One San Diego at kpbs.org. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.